Well, this is our final sermon from the book of Ruth. And that is a little bit sad to me that we have to be done here, but we have to move on. There are other texts of the Bible to study. But I want to give you two encouragements as we close our study of Ruth. The first is to encourage you to continue to think about Ruth and to read Ruth and study this text of Scripture before the next time it's preached here because I don't think that'll be for another couple of decades. So you need Ruth between now and then. So don't let this be the final time you think about this book in, in your life. And so read this book. The second encouragement is that we're about to spend our time looking at a genealogy. And if you're like me, at a first glance, a genealogy is not something that you would consider worth spending time on. And if you even read it, you read through really quickly and you don't even try to pronounce the names in your head because Old Testament names are the worst. And so if, if that's your approach to genealogies, I want to help you think differently about them this morning. The genealogy in Ruth occurs at the end of the book, and that's pretty abnormal. We're used to seeing them at the beginning of a book. And in that way, we can kind of look at them and maybe wrongly think it's like an old movie where the, the cast of characters scrolls through at the beginning and you kind of fast forward through that to get to the actual movie or like normal movies now where it's at the end where all the actors are listed and we don't even look at it. Well, don't think about a genealogy that way. Instead, maybe think about it as the scrolling lines at the beginning of a Star Wars movie that are giving you the plot in the background and they're the interpretive key to the text. Or in our case with the book of Ruth, like a historical fiction movie where at the end, there are just narrator lines that tell you what happened in everyone's lives. So, you know, so this figure went on to become the president of the United States or something like that. Well, if, if you skip that part of the movie, you're still benefiting from whatever you saw in the movie, but you're not getting the full significance of it. And this genealogy is like the interpretive key to the book of Ruth. And it gives us a whole nother horizon at which we can look. So we've looked at the local horizon, just the individual events that happened in the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And we've tried to feel what they felt and think what they thought. And that's good. There's benefit there, but there's a larger horizon of meaning that we need to take in. And this genealogy helps us do that. It positions this story in the larger redemptive work of God in the old covenant people. So this genealogy is directing our gaze to the larger picture of what God is doing so it's not that this is just a nice love story or just a, a happy event that took place, but it's actually the progressive work of God to redeem Israel, and then as we'll consider in Matthew, to redeem the rest of the world. So this genealogy is really, really important. So what I, what I want to do is to look at it at the individual levels. We kind of consider some of the names in this genealogy, but then to span out and look at the old covenant people of God and how it's significant to them, and then to conclude by considering how it's significant to us as God's new covenant community. Now, to place this, 
I, I think that we're all aware, and if you're not, this is a spoiler alert, but the, the last name of the genealogy, David, is the guy who goes on to be Israel's greatest king. So we have this Davidic throne and this Davidic line, and ultimately this genealogy is going to clue us into the reality that God is moving Israel from a time of no king to a time of king. There, there's a king that's going to be in place. And this is significant for, for a number of reasons. If you remember at the beginning of Ruth, Ruth 1, we start with this phrase that it's during the time of the judges that these events take place. And of course, then we need to turn one book back and figure out, well, what was going on during the time of the judges? You know, it's like when, when a movie starts with during World War II, well, we know all of the background we need to have in mind. That's what this line of during the time of the judges is doing. It's giving you kind of the air of what's going on. And the last verse of Judges that summarizes everything in Judges is that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So this time of the Judges is a dark time in Israel's history. In even the brightest moments, if we read them attentively, are actually not that bright. So one bright moment that's often referred to in Sunday schools and other places is this guy Gideon who fights the, the Lord's war, essentially, and he's this great guy, theoretically. But you've got to keep reading because even one of the best guys in Judges is actually a really not-so-great guy. Because at the end, all of Israel is saying, we want you to rule over us. And he turns it down. He says, I'm not going to be your king and neither will my son. Well, oddly, he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. So there's something going on there. But beyond that, Gideon goes on to have everyone collect their gold and make an idol. And they all start praying to this thing. And it's a, it's a scourge in Israel that eventually leads them all to worship this guy, this idol, this false god, Baal. And if you're, if you're reading Judges carefully, Gideon's actual name is Jeru Baal, which means something like, may Baal be great. You know, so, so even the brightest moment in the book of Judges is filled with idolatry and sin. So when we get to that final note that everyone did what seemed right to him, well, what seemed right to them was breaking the covenant with their God and worshiping false gods. So, so this is a bad thing. Now, I, I pronounced a, a name Baal, and I think I got some weird looks. We sometimes say Baal. Well, that's okay. Say Baal if that's more normal. I think properly it's Baal. But anyway, I saw some furrowed brows and wanted to clear that up. Baal and Baal are the same false god that Israel shouldn't have been worshiping. So we start the book of Ruth during that time when even the best of people are faithless and idol worshipers, and if you remember, there's that line that there was a famine in the land. Well, again, we need to read the Bible carefully and attentively. And what God has told Israel is that when you are proud, I am going to humble you by bringing famine to your land. So out of my covenant love, I'm bringing you to a land where you will reap where you did not sow, 
where you will live in cities that you did not build. But when you turn to worship false gods, I will humble you with famine. So Deuteronomy 8.3 spells this out exactly. Well, when we're reading about the time of judges and famine in the land, we should instinctively say that everyone here needs to turn in repentance to the Lord and this covenant God will be faithful to them and he'll heal their land and bring food and restoration. Well, in this time where there's no king, during this time of apparent idolatry, we learn that a man leaves the land that God has given them. And this guy's name is Elimelech. My God is king is the meaning of that name. So from the very beginning, the author of this story is trying to emphasize we're in a time of problem. This is problematic. There's no king here. Moses talked about a king who would be appointed, who would read God's statutes and model what it looks like to obey the instruction of the Lord. Well, we don't have that. And every ruler who shows up is a faithless, idol-worshiping ruler. Well, that's a problem. And we need to get that for this genealogy to have the significance that it does or to feel that significance. So you have this guy whose name means my God is king, who faithlessly leaves the land in search of food from Moab rather than repenting so that the Lord would restore them and feed them. So I've been reading Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons in a very critical way. And I think that's confirmed when they're out of the land. And in fact, three out of the four of them die. And, and then the text says that God visited the land with food. So Naomi, who left the land, was not there to receive from God's life-giving presence. So everything that we're seeing here is a negative, bad picture. And when we get to the genealogy, it's going to show us that even in the worst of times, there is a God who's faithful to his people. And even in the midst of unfaithfulness, God's redemptive plans are not being frustrated. And... Beyond that, it's not atypical of God to do this. That's what this genealogy is going to show us, is that what we've seen in the book of Ruth is what God has been doing for his people from day one. Now, for the sake of what the genealogy is doing, some people are cut out of the genealogy, but it invites us to reflect on the patriarchs. And, we, and for instance, consider Abraham, who, who put God's redemptive plan in jeopardy by giving his wife on two occasions to rulers who wanted to marry her or at least sleep with her. Well, when God made a promise for the seed of the woman who would redeem his people to come through that lady, by every human effort, we, we would think God can't do this. Well, God does it every time. He protected Sarah and he moved his redemptive plan forward. Well, the genealogy that we have at the end of Ruth picks up with this guy named Perez. Now, the genealogy could have picked up with Abraham or Adam or anyone else, but with the way that genealogies work in the ancient Near East is that they don't always include every generation and that they're more of a theological significant record than a precise family record. And the way that they emphasize people of note is by putting them in two locations. 
in the seventh location in the genealogy and in the tenth location in the genealogy. And in the genealogy that we have, the guy in the seventh location is Boaz, and the guy in the tenth location is David. So starting with Perez was necessary to be able to put these guys in spots that highlight them, okay? But by recalling Perez, it's recalling to mind the faithfulness of God through the patriarchal age. So we begin in verse 18. Now these are the family records of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron. Now we've got to remember who Perez is. Perez is the son of Judah. His mother is Tamar. Now this correlates to earlier in the book of Ruth where where the people are saying, may God make Ruth like, or make your house like the house of Perez, who was fathered by Tamar. Well, the point is that in that situation, you have Judah, the son of Israel, who's approached a lady dressed up like a cult prostitute. And through that union, the redemptive plan was worked forward. So in that time, God redeemed the failing act of humanity to press forward his redemptive agenda. He was faithful in spite of the worst of actions that we could conceive of. Furthermore, this name Perez means something like a breach or a breaking in. And I think the point is that what we'll see in this genealogy is a breaking in of a new epic or a new age in what God is doing to redeem his people and ultimately to redeem the whole world. So Perez fathered Hezron. And for a few of these guys, they're not as significant. That's why they're not in the the main places. Herez fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Well, what this genealogy doesn't include that Matthew's genealogy includes, what Matthew picks up on is that this guy Salmon married a lady named Rahab. And if you remember who Rahab was, she's this Gentile woman who helps the Israelites as they're conquering Jericho. Well, this lady was protected her and her family and she was brought into Israel and it's recorded that she's in Israel to this day. So you have this Gentile lady who marries this guy who we presume is an Israelite and their son is Boaz. I I hope you're picking up on the fact that with this breach genealogy, there's a significant action that's being taken. And that is that there's this lady Tamar and now this lady Rahab, who by all external appearances should not be included in a genealogy and in a family line that's going to lead towards Israel's greatest king. The way that we've read the Old Testament sometimes orients us to think that Gentiles have no part in God's plan. Well, God is going to look at Israel and say, you who are being unfaithful to me are not my people. That's what, we, that's what we heard in Hosea. Well, by including these individuals, these Gentiles in this royal line, I think God is subtly saying, Gentiles who worship me are true Israelites. They're true Israelites indeed. Okay? And, and we've discussed this already at length as we've seen Boaz marry Ruth, who's a Moabite, 
because she shows herself as a woman of virtuous character, because she pledges herself to Israel, to this people who will now be my people, to their God who will be my God. And we're starting to see that being a person of God's covenant community is not necessarily going to be defined in terms of your ethnic identity. This is what Matthew picks up in his genealogy, and it's what he emphasizes. We'll turn there in a moment, but keep that in mind. This breach that's going on in this royal line is that God is starting to include Gentiles in significant ways in his redemptive plan. To, to just one more comment on that. If, if you are trying to add up percentages of ethnicity, you know, pure-bloodedness or, or something like that, by the time you get to Boaz, you've got a guy who has a lot of non-Israelite blood in him. And this guy is a man of character who owns land in the promised land and apparently in an irrevocable way because his name is continued on in genealogies throughout the rest of the Bible. So as we, as we look at this, it's not just an isolated incident, but it's becoming the norm. So that by the time you get to David, you have this guy who, who ends up marrying a lady named Bathsheba, who's married to, previously to Uriah the Hittite, and by all speculation, she's probably a Hittite as well, so that when you get to Solomon, you get a guy who's even more Gentile than his father was. So I'm just trying to make the point that as we have this family record of Perez, there's a breach into what our expectation might be. I think the way that we ought to respond to this is to just recognize that God works in very surprising ways. And in, in, in fact, in unexpected ways, and he does so through ordinary, average individuals. And as people who are in this room outside of Israel, and most of us probably have no Jewish blood in us, we can thank God that Gentiles get folded into his redemptive work in that he uses Gentiles in marvelous ways and in, in that he can use us too. So when we look at this broader movement of redemption, we get to be part of what God's doing to redeem the world. So Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So David's in this 10th line. He's in this end point of the genealogy, and it's signaling that a new age is upon us. So you had the patriarch age, you had this age where individuals are entering into the land, and now we have this kingship age where God's rule, his promised ruler, is going to be established forever. Okay, I've, I've been talking about this on a very local, individualized level, but we need to distinguish between history as event and history as writing. Okay, so there, there are two elements of history. One side is the events that take place, and the other side is the record of those events. And when we think about the events that just take place, we're thinking about them in a more isolated way, and we're trying to relate to the characters who are being portrayed. Well, when we get to the history writing section, we also have to ask, why is the history writer portraying these events in a particular way? Why is this writer of history emphasizing certain things? Well, 
by all accounts, it's not beyond debate, but it's pretty well settled, Ruth was probably written during the exile. So when Israel is out of the land and they're under the rulership of another king. And I think what's going on here is that the author of Ruth is trying to send a message to the larger covenant people of God while they're in a really bad spot. Because by the time they're exiled, they're, they're in an even worse spot than the time of the judges. Because once again, there is no Davidic king in the land. And it seems that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And in that way, I think we need to read Ruth and Naomi and their family as a, an image of Israel. I, I think the storyteller is looking at back at the history of God's redemptive action and saying, okay, there's a family that experienced something at a local level that's a lot like what we as a nation are experiencing at a covenant people level. So think about it. There's this guy, Elimelech, and his family who leave the land. It's like a self-imposed exile, and, and they're dependent on the people of Moab for their livelihood. And it's almost like God is away from them, and they're at the mercy of the God of Moab, this God, Kamosh. Well, Israel, while they're in exile, as people are thinking about God's having territorial power, by all accounts are wondering, does our God, Yahweh, have power for us now? And, and what's our future? Has God abandoned us while we're in exile? We don't have our king. What's going to happen to us? Will God be faithful to us even as we've been unfaithful to him? And then as we read Israel's history, as they eventually return to the land and build a, another temple, the response when that temple is complete is that the old men cried. And, and as we read writing from the second temple period, these Jews considered themselves in exile in their own land. And that's emphasized as they have client kings ruling over them. And even their own king, Herod, is just doing the bitter bidding of imperial Rome. So from the time this story is written, all the way up until the New Testament was written, Jews were reading the book of Ruth and saying, I think, this story is a story that we need to pay attention to because we're in this exact spot. We're in exile and we don't have God's Messiah ruling over us. So what hope does this story give them? Well, the hope that this story and that this genealogy gives them is that no act of man of conquering or unfaithfulness or rebellion is going to frustrate God's plans. Nothing that any human can do to them whether it's through exiling them and putting them in captivity or the failure of Israel to maintain faithfulness to the Lord will keep God from acting with covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. So they can read this and know there is a Messiah who will come. There's this glimmer of hope in the genealogy. So then, when we get to the New Testament and Matthew's gospel, Matthew picks up on this hope in this idea. And that's why in Matthew chapter one, he includes all of these individuals in the genealogy that he lays out. And I think what he's trying to say is, look, Israel, we've been in exile in our own land, but guess what? The, God's been faithful. The Messiah's here. 
And the final person in that genealogy is Jesus. And just as David ushered in a new epic age for Israel, Jesus is ushering in a new epic age for his people. But this genealogy that Matthew gives, that includes people like Boaz and Rahab and Ruth, would be a genealogy that not only gave hope, but would challenge Israel's expectations for what God was going to do in establishing his new and better king. So we talk about Jesus as the greater son of David, and he is, and that's how the apostles talked about him. But the way that Matthew presents Jesus and the way that he talks about Jesus in the rest of his gospel turns over the expectations of what Israel had for the installation of God's Messiah and of God's King in Israel. What we come to find out is that instead of God using his Messiah to conquer hostile nations and to drive out Gentiles, we, co- we come to find that what God has been doing all along is that he's going to restore Israel, not by defeating the nations, but by folding the nations into God's messianic kingdom. So the resurrected Christ makes clear that his reform of Israel and restoration and redemption of Israel is going to be directed to drawing the nations back to God rather than destroying them as Israel's enemies. That's what's going on here, and that's what this genealogy in Ruth is prefiguring. That God has a plan to redeem not just Israel, but the world, and that's how the promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. Matthew emphasizes this by highlighting some significant actions between Jesus and Gentiles, where he declares that those Gentiles had more faith than anyone in Israel. He'll say things like, I have not seen such faith in Israel, period, as he's speaking to Gentiles who he heals and restores. So as we we look at all of this, and, and beyond simply the fact that God is folding Gentiles into his redemptive work, how should we respond? And and how should we leave and reflect on this text? Well, I want to give you a few suggestions that hopefully will help. First, I think that we ought to respond to these genealogies by recognizing them as a testimony of God's unified redemptive work. So what we do when we read these Old Testament narratives is we read them as at a local level, but we have to understand that these narratives are not isolated incidents and that these characters are not isolated characters. These genealogies weave figures together who appear throughout the Old Testament to display that God is working through ordinary people to bring about his redemptive plan. I think as parents, as you read the Bible with your kids and us as we read the Bible together, we need to recognize that the Bible is not a, a collection of isolated stories that just provide good examples for us. I think they are good examples for us. I think we should say things like, be like Boaz, be like Ruth. Don't be like Naomi at the start of the story, be like Naomi at the end of the story. 
I think that's good and right, and I think these authors want us to learn moral lessons. And that's not moralism. So if you hear people saying, don't read these individuals and say you want to be like them or not be like them, do that. Read it in that way, but don't stop there. Allow these genealogies to remind you that these individuals' stories are not actually their own story, but God's redemptive story. And, and start to read the Bible that way. These genealogies clue us into the fact that the genealogy in every story in the Bible is ultimately about God's redemptive work. It's the glue that binds together events that seem to be disconnected. Second, I think that this genealogy should cause us to reflect on our own identity and relationships. That's what family records do. And if you, if you ever sit down and flip through the family photo album and you start to notice features of individuals that kind of look like you and you think, oh, that's where I get that from. Well, when we start to think about who we are as we look at these individuals, we start to realize we're not that much different from them. These individuals are not grade A covenant keepers. Most individuals in these genealogies are pretty bad people. And as we start to think about our own identity, I think we can relate to these individuals and say, I am just about as bad as those people, and for some of them worse. You know, some of them murdered people, and we haven't done that yet, but, and hopefully never. But we look at these and say, that's me. We read ourselves into the story as we look at these names. And I think that's particularly true, not with the names that we recognize and that we know a lot about, but the names where we never see them anywhere else in Scripture. And there's no story connected to them. They're just ordinary people through whom God worked to continue his redemptive plan. And I think we should strive to be those people. Those people who are going to stand in the line and carry on God's promises to his people. Finally, I think that we should allow these genealogies to cultivate within us a hope and an expectation for the continued rule of Christ and the fullness of that rule in the new created world. I, I think in the way that Israel in exile could be doubting and was doubting, will there ever be a messianic king that brings restoration and hope and healing? that reverses the death and famine and sickness that we're experiencing? Well, I think those are the same kinds of questions that we ask. Is Jesus ever going to establish his throne in a way that removes death and sorrow and wipes away tears? And without biblical reflection and spiritual insight, I think we're prone to say no. And, and even though we might not say those words, we express them as we start to turn to other messianic-like items to provide healing and life and peace and satisfaction. Now, God gives us great gifts that remedy these things and that mitigate the death in our life. But I think as, we st as, as you start to recognize the only thing that I care about is reading health blogs and extending my life as far as possible and investing in treatments for everything possible, realize that that's not the answer. That's not going to do it, but you can have true and genuine hope that there is one who will remove all death and sickness in the age to come. 
When, when you find yourself consumed with every thought about politics, and if, if you find yourself angry that Trump was impeached and not convicted or impeached, well, however you think about that, if you're mad on the, whatever way you look at that, start to allow that to show you that you're, you're starting to at least incline yourself to find messianic-like hope in, in a false messiah kingdom. The, the kingdoms of this world can't provide the security and, and safety that you're looking for. When, when you start to look at your family line and, and you start to say, either I'm a good person because I have this great heritage of individuals who have gone before me and, and they've walked with the Lord and I can rest in that, or if you look at your family line and say, my family's awful and when I yell at people and, and when I don't have faith and when I incline myself towards addiction, it's their fault. Well, allow these genealogies to show you that there are individuals who departed from their family lines in both ways. You have Ruth, whose mother, great-great-great-grandmother, slept with her father. You have Boaz, whose great-grandfather slept with a prostitute. You, you have all sorts of bad things in that family line, but they remain faithful to the Lord and, and God allowed them to reverse their family history. But then we read forward, the last name in that genealogy is David. Well, David broke from Boaz's sexual faithfulness as he murdered somebody and slept with another woman. So as we reflect on these genealogies and we start to find despair or hope in our family line, realize that the only hope is through our Redeemer Christ who is coming, and that's who these genealogies ultimately point to. So I, I think as we reflect on these things, we should allow these genealogies to cultivate a confidence and expectation and hope that what God has done consistently throughout human history, he's going to do again. And if that's the case, we need to ask the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do we rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. But these guys didn't read the genealogy. They, they don't know that the messianic king is coming and he's there to stay. And because that's true, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in the wrath. And this is his declaration. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance in the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. God, God is going to bring the fullness of the kingdom in a way that Jesus the Messiah does this. And he'll make the nations the inheritance of Christ either through judgment or through salvation. So, so we have to embrace that salvation. So now, kings, now church, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. 
serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him are happy. 